Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Well, today we are going to begin the very last chapter of the Gospel of John, chapter 21. I was reflecting this morning that it has been about two years and two months in the Gospel of John. So, uh, that long in the Gospel of John. Yeah, just reflecting on that. Went back and looked at the first podcast I did. It was in August of 2017 for this book, and uh, so I knew it would be a longer one, and that's okay. The, the Gospel is of John is just a unique book compared to all the other Gospels. It's a totally unique snapshot, and now you know why. So uh, we have, as we discussed last week, it appeared that John was kind of closing the Gospel at the end of chapter 20, but yet he, he actually had more to say. Chapter 21 is not it's not just an afterthought. It's not just an addition uh, that somebody else wrote. I really believe it was John. This is all John's work. But it was important for him to bring us to the climax of chapter 20, the climax of the story of Jesus. He began with Jesus. Jesus was God in chapter 1. And he ends chapter 20 with Thomas declaring Jesus is God. The risen Christ is now seen as God. And so that's the full fullness of the story. But in 21, John has some very important words to say about the church, about some of his disciples, their role, the roles that they will play, and, and uh, what the church can mean to us. So uh, with that, if you have a prayer card, take it out. Let's ask the Lord's blessing before we study. Ask him to il- illumine our hearts, as it says in the prayer. So uh, if you have your cards, let us pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you. Um, Look at the first 14 verses with me this morning. And we'll, I'll read through the first 14 verses. That's all we'll cover today because after that kind of gets into a lot of uh, talk to Peter. Next week we'll talk about 
Jesus and his restoration of Peter. But right now, let's look at these first 14 verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his clothes, for he was stripped for work, and he sprang into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's stop there. This is the second supernatural fishing trip. For these disciples. Do you all remember the first one? What was the story of the first supernatural fishing trip? It's not in the Gospel of John. But do you all recall it and what happened? When he was calling them by the seashore, he said, I'll make you fishers of men. Uh Early in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, there's a story. It's similar to this in that they were fishing and not catching anything. You remember that? And they'd fished all night. And Jesus said, put your net on the other side. And you remember what happened then? Yeah, they caught all they the fish argued. again. It's like this. The first they argued, though. Oh, yeah. Peter said, well, hey, we've, been, we've done that already. Done that, been that. There's no fish biting tonight. Jesus said, you know, just do it. So, okay, we'll do it. If you say so. <laughs> if you say so. So they do it. You could see a little antagonism in Peter's voice when you go back and read through that story, you know. And... Uh, in their, the catch was supernatural. It was so many that is a little different that time. It, it, does anybody recall the detail that time? It doesn't tell us the number, but he tells us an important detail. The nets were breaking. The, the nets were breaking. It almost sank the ship. That's right. And the nets were breaking. I mean, there was a huge haul. That was the beginning of their call to ministry. And as you said, Debbie, Jesus had told them, I will make you fishers of men. And that... That idea that the nets were bursting probably was symbolic of this idea that 
There's so many fish to catch in the sea. There's so many people in the world that need your ministry. You know, it's just going to feel like you can't catch them all. Yes? This may be a little on the dense side this morning. But That's all right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but the first time, in the first instance, they knew who he was, and yet when he said to cast their nets, they're kind of like, yeah. Yeah. But this time it says that they did not realize that it was Jesus. Hmm? And he said, cast your nets. They're going, okay, mm-hmm. cast, we'll do it. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing I found mm-hmm. very strange. But the second thing I find very strange is that the amount of fish, the number is mentioned. Yeah. So those, are, those are my two things there. That good, good observations, Linda, very good observations. Well, let's, let's think it through to this morning. Those are great questions. Let, what have we learned about John's style of writing? His details. And he's matter of fact. He, he includes all these little details as clues to us. He doesn't throw stuff in just to be throwing it in. If he said 153, there's a reason. If he said the nets didn't break, there's a reason. If he's, so we, you're, you're good to observe these things because we, we're going to talk about it. Um, in the beginning here, let's let's talk about the first thing that you notice. They didn't recognize him. The first time in Luke 5, this very early in their ministry, and Jesus is this phenomenal person that's called them and had an impact on them. So they were more he was more easily recognizable to them. But what have we learned since the resurrection in the last couple of weeks when we talked about how he appeared to them the two different Sunday nights, you know, in the in the upper room? There was something about him that was not recognizable. You recall that? It was as if they had to, you know, Thomas, of course, wanted to see the, the prince and the, the spear side. Well, he was but, Mary Magdalene and didn't recognize him right. first. And do you remember why we said that was? Why was Jesus so unrecognizable the, after the resurrection? I, part of it, I think, is he's spirit now. But I think it, they were so intent that he was dead mm-hmm. that they couldn't... Uh, Bring the reality that he was going to come back. They didn't. They didn't, They knew it because he told them. Yeah. But they didn't believe it. Really. So there might have been a little shock factor yeah, exactly. there. But but as you you kind of said, now he was spirit. I think a, perhaps a little better way to say it is now he's glorified. Yeah, that's what I meant. Okay. Yeah. I, knew, I knew that's what you meant, but sure, I want to sure make it known. He's glorified. He is risen from the dead. Remember, Jesus Christ was truly human. Mm-hmm. And the the mystery of the mystery of our faith is that he was truly human and truly God. Okay, truly human, truly, not 50-50, 100 to 100. Okay, God-man, the great mystery of our faith. But in that, in that being, he, he looked human. He felt human. You know, he lived human. But now that he's been crucified and resurrected, he is human glorified. He represents what we will or he is, I won't say represents, he is what we will one day be. We will one day be glorified human bodies, okay? This body that dies and gets laid in the ground and decays is going to be risen again at the end of all time. And it will be risen, Scripture says, in the twinkling of an eye. And it will be risen incorruptible, is the word that that St. Paul uses. This body is sown perishable, but risen imperishable, corruptible and incorruptible, perfect, glorified. 
Now, I don't know what that means. None of us can really, truly know. So we don't really know what Jesus looked like here. There were no cameras. Nobody stopped and sketched a picture. You know, nobody details it. It's just this phenomenon that he's glorified, and he's somehow different. Would he yes? Not, would he not have some kind of a glow about him of some sort? That I mean, like the artists sure like to paint it that way, this holy glow. You know, I, I, I kind of doubt that it was a physical glow, but, but you know how you can look at a person, and we can even look at people, and they seem to just, there's something in their eyes, and they just seem to glow, their persona about them. Yes? Jim? Well, even in verse 12, it says, in the King James, it says, Jesus saith unto them, come and die. And then it says, and none of the disciples dared ask him, who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. So, you know, that... They knew it was him, but yet they, they didn't immediately recognize him. But they knew it was him, because <clears throat> this was they were in the supernatural presence of God. Well, but the doors had not been opened, right? Well, this is actually down by the sea. Oh, okay. Before, yeah, the, right. Oh, yeah. But that's a good point. The other the other times, yeah. the doors were not. He just appeared in the room. Yeah. Okay? So I think there's some clues here. John is telling us, look at the very, the very first word that's a clue here is in verse 1, the fourth word. After this, Jesus revealed himself. Why would John tell us that he revealed himself unless it was to, to show us that he has the nature and the power to be wherever he wants to be or to not be revealed if he does not need to be revealed or not want to be revealed. But he revealed himself, okay? So he's not, he's not located necessarily completely in time and space the same way we are now that he's glorified. Could show up in the room show up on the shore, you know, it's just, and, and, and now, so John, he's revealing himself, and he's revealing himself on purpose, and he's revealing himself by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, yours probably, some might say the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, same sea. It's got a lot of names, Tiberias, Gennesaret, Galilee, just lots of different names. It's sometimes called a lake instead of a sea. Um, big body of water, though, and it's the one that they'd grown up around. It's the one where they'd fished all their lives. And it's the Galilee where a lot of Jesus' ministry had taken place. And so he's by the Sea of Galilee. Why, did, why is that important that he reveals himself by the Sea of Galilee rather than the first two times in Jerusalem? And why is it important that John tells us it's the third time? Because that's where he originally called them. Okay. So a couple of... Very good. He's... he's, he's Calling them again, if you will. I think we hear that. He's reminding them of their call. But it's also the very next time. And the very next time is back in the world. It's back in the place where they live. It's back in the place where they've ministered. It's back in the place where they're familiar. So Jesus isn't just some phenomena that happens only in Jerusalem. Okay. So there's a message. He's with them wherever they go. He was with them in Jerusalem. He's with them in Galilee. He'll be with them wherever they go. So there's some blim, some kind of, if we can use the word maybe subliminal messages here that, that, that John is giving us clues to. Now, they're subliminal to us. When the readers first read them, they knew what it meant. Okay, the Bible is not a hidden text. I don't mean it to sound that way. Okay, it was very understandable. Even when we get to this 153 that we've raised here this morning. What, why was that? I think they understood it. 
And we have to search to understand it because we're 2,000 years removed from the culture and the context. But, but in that, he reveals himself this time to who? How many disciples? There's about six of them. Seven. There's seven there. Okay. Peter, Simon Peter, it says. Nathaniel, okay. Thomas, the one that was the, considered the doubter, the twin, okay. Those three. And then James and John, both. The brothers, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, both. That's the five of the twelve, okay. And then it says, and two others. Yeah. So probably we can surmise that those two were not one of the two of the twelve. I think if they were two of the twelve, John would have mentioned them. But you know they had other friends. Jesus had many disciples following him around. It was somebody that was known to them. So they were all fishing buddies. They were all together. They just went fishing. And uh, I think it's worth our stopping to ask, why did they go fishing? So why did Peter say, I'm going fishing? That's what they knew to do. Yeah. They so had to eat. We, I'm hungry. <laughs> they're hungry. Okay, they had to eat and they're hungry. That makes sense. So Jesus, remember, they've been three years with Jesus. These traveling ministers, okay, living off the land, so to speak. Jesus gets killed. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus appears to them. They're in the Jerusalem for the, the high holy days, but they've got to eventually get back to life, and they have to go home. And so they leave Jerusalem. You can just see them kind of gathering around going, boys, we haven't been fishing for we haven't made a living fishing three years. We've, we've always been with Jesus. There's always been something to eat. And now what are we going to do? I, I guess we go back to fishing. And I don't think that that's going back to fishing because they've given up on Jesus. I mean, they've already seen him. They know he's alive. Okay. But they don't have a clue what their role is in the church yet. The, the Pentecost hasn't happened. You know, Jesus hasn't ascended. They don't have a clue yet. These are just living day to day trying to figure out what's next and i guess we should we need to eat you know so let's go fishing they fish all night nothing don't catch a thing and then there's this wonderful person on the shore i think there's some symbolism there they're out to sea jesus is on the shore you know before he walked on water and was always in a boat with him remember those kind of things you know but now maybe there's some symbolism of them being on the waters, him being on the shore. Being out on the waters may represent the world, the seas of the world. The, the, you know, it, you, you had to travel the seas in order to go conquer the world. You know, and out on the seas, lots of uncertainty. But Jesus is on the shore. Now he's on the shoreline. If you were, if you were a out on the sea, the shoreline always represents your destination. Now, you know, you want, can't wait till you see the shore on a sea trip, you know, if you were on a long voyage or something, you know. And I, I envision that, I mean, to me this is just a great, full of love. I envision Jesus as just sitting there watching them with love yeah. and enjoying it. And then he say, and then even maybe a little sense of humor, like, I'm going to reveal my, I mean, when I do this, they're yeah. going to know, and it's going to be fun watching their eyes yeah. or whatever. I, you know, I sure. envision him like, having I, fun with it. And, absolutely. Yeah. Probably so. I mean, can you imagine his, his, uh, Jesus, I think G, we can imagine Jesus' excitement when John gets it. 
-hmm. Who's the first one to know it's Jesus? John. John. And they didn't question him. And he writes it. That's right. And he writes it with an exclamation point. It's the Lord. Okay. You know, when when there's been a discussion going on, this person on the shore says, uh, says, hey, children, have you caught anything? Have you any fish, I think is the way that. My scripture, my version phrased it. Have you caught? In the, in the Greek, it's phrased in such a way that it's expecting a negative answer. Jesus knows they haven't caught anything. You know, have you caught anything? If you've ever been fishing, it's, it's, it's you know, you've, you spend, I've been fishing a lot on expedition. Not a lot, but I mean, a lot of the times I've been fishing, it's been to catch nothing. Okay. I'm not that good a fisherman. And I know the feeling of coming home empty-handed. Okay. I don't remember those times. I only remember the times I caught fish. <laughs> but I, what I remember about them most, and the reason I remember them, is when people would come by or see you, and they go, "Hey, have you caught anything?" <laughs> and you go, "No." You know, you just feel like the lowest. You feel like the lowest. Like you know, what are you wasting your time out here for? You know. Still, still being out in. Oh yeah, it's always beautiful to be in nature. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's he's special. The one that <laughs> My son would catch the fish. Yeah, which I'm happy for, you know. <laughs> but but the realities are, you, there's this competitiveness in us guys, you know. Yeah. Some guy walks by. Have you caught anything? No. Well, look what I caught. You know, he pulls out this big fish. <laughs> we got this competitiveness in us guys. Was fishing done at night? Well, a lot of times it was. It it is today still. I remember my brother, my brother, my oldest brother was an avid fisherman. He was great at it. And he fished a lot at night. You could fish in the day, morning, night. In fact, early mornings and evenings are the best fishing because the waters are cooler. Fish are not as active in the heat of the day when the sun's penetrating the water. And they tend to go down deep and get still. Fish are cold-blooded uh, beings. So I think nighttime is very common for them to fish, nighttime and mornings. Um, now they had the fresh haul for the day and they would sell it to the, you know, the shopkeepers in the market and everything in the morning. Um, so I, I don't think that's unusual, but I do think we can take something away. You notice he doesn't say, Hey guys, <laughs> what does he say? He calls them children. Does that seem a little odd to you? He calls them children. My, 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 Yours says friends. says friends. Yeah. He calls them friends. Yeah. In the original Greek, it's children. Okay. Now, if you read John's letters in the first epistle, second, those, he uses that word a lot. My little children. As John's teaching, you read all through the book of First John. My little children. That's a very common phrase, and this word means. My little children is what this word means in the Greek. And, and it means that because that's what rabbis said to their students. My, that's, what, that's, what, that's what students were, my little children. Okay, You were pupils. You were learning. It specifically, the Greek specifically uh, connotes a, a child or a youth that is not of age yet. So they're still in the learning. They're still being trained. So there's a little bit of a clue. He knows these are my trainees. These are my kids. These are my, my learners. Okay, I did the word disciple means learner, you know, student. And so he says, have you any fish? They say no. And he tells them to cast it on the other side. And there's this miraculous catch. 153 fish. 
talk about that a little bit. Why 100? What a unique number, 153. You know, we're used to numbers in the Bible, sometimes, you know, 12 and 7. Remember how many baskets full left over the 7 and the 12 and the two big feedings, the miraculous loaves and fishes. And those were representative. Remember the seven represented, because seven's a perfect number. I mean, it kind of represents the completion of, you know, the seven days of the week, you know, uh, the fullness, that type number. Eight represents the new, the eighth day Jesus appeared to them. Eight always represents infinity and eternity in the kingdom of God. But seven is that biblical number that represents the kind of the completion. And then the 12, of course, was the other time, and that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, which would represent the fullness of God's people, which would represent, in of course, in New Testament times, everyone in the world. But where in the world does 153 come in? One thing we can be sure, that John wrote that for a reason, and the people who first read his letter, his gospel, understood it. So let's put ourselves back into context. When is John writing this? John is writing this near the end of his life, He's writing this late, so late in the first century. He's an old man. He's living in probably around the area of Ephesus, which is up in what is modern-day Turkey. You know, it's quite a long ways north. This is about AD 70, right? No, much past that. Probably more like 90, maybe. We don't know the num- We don't know the actual date, though. Right. But we know it's late in his life. Um, but the, here's the point. He's a long ways from Jerusalem. Long ways from Judea, long ways from Galilee. He's steeped in the heart of a totally different culture. He's been living up there. This is where the gospel we know has been preached, you know, all across the the Roman Empire. But what's the context? What's the culture of the people in Ephesus? The Bible calls them Greeks. Okay, what was the empire? Even though the Roman Empire is ruling the world at this time, Greek. Culture, they were, they Greek were culture scholars, ruled the world. The people that were educated, they were scholars, uh, uh, forward-thinking. Sure, Greek culture, Greek. The Greek Empire was before the Roman Empire. The Romans eventually conquered the Greeks, but they couldn't conquer the culture. Latin never surpassed Greek in language. Greek was still the language of commerce. The Greek always was, Not, and it's the language of scholarship the writings and things. That's why the New Testament's all written in Greek. Even the Old Testament, remember, we've talked about the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. 250 years before Jesus, the Jewish people themselves translated their scriptures into Greek. That's the oldest known text of scripture we have, the Greek Septuagint. So Greek is important. It's Greek culture. It's Greek context. And one of the things Greeks are famous for is I think you said it there, Pat, was this idea of wisdom or philosophy. You know, Greek philosophy. I mean, go take a philosophy class. You're going to study a lot of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all these. But they're also famous for just wisdom in general. They were, they, the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom was very important to the Greek culture. And another area that the Greeks were famous with was mathematics. Greeks were very uh, mathematical and figuring things out, and you know, I am. I'm just going to give you some overviews here because I'm terrible at math. Okay, I mean, absolutely terrible. I I can add, subtract, multiply, and divide. I don't even know what the word trigonometry means. I know geometry means something to do with shapes, but don't ask me how to figure out the circumference of that shape or anything like that. 
Okay, but I do know that there's this thing called pie. Okay, pie. It's wrong because it says pie. Pie are square. All my pies are brown. Pie is this There's an there's an international pie day. Mathematicians had an international day of pie. So pie, when we talk talking that kind of pie, it's usually spelled P-I. Okay, and 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 sometimes it's like I don't know. I probably won't draw this right, but kind of like that. You know, the symbol of pie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I paid attention just enough to remember that, and that's about it. And I think it has something to do with a number 3.14. I'm looking at somebody to help me out. 3. Point what? 1.4. And I, I understand it really goes further than that. Infinity. But if you work it, does it just goes on and on and on. I found the end of it. But pi, and I don't even remember why pi was important. I mean, it's important, but I don't remember why. But, 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 but the point, what I did learn in my studies here, okay, was who's the guy that invented pi? Or discovered it, not invented, discovered Oh, gosh, I didn't know, but I can't There's a famous that. Greek mathematician. That guy up there. I wrote him down. There you go. Good thinking. Archimedes. Archimedes. Yep. Archimedes. And in, in, Archi- in his discovership of pi, or whatever that is, he, he had ten equations. He was famous for ten equations. That, that led somehow to this discussion. And I apologize now for the mathematicians who are listening to this podcast someday. <laughs> I'm, I'm butchering this, okay? If you're forced, one, five, nine, two, six, five. Yeah. And then on and on, maybe. I don't know. So, um, so here's, the, here's the point. Of these ten equations, famous equations, the first nine equations all total and or end with the number 153. 153. Don't ask me to explain it anymore, okay? <laughs> yes, I can't. It's a reality, though. The, the 9 of the 10 all end with 153. The Greek people in his culture, especially the wise people and the scholars and the people learning, 153 fish. I, now, there's lots of schools of thought here. You go study this idea. Why You go Google why 153 fish, and you're going to get about as many different ideas. as, as I mean, St. Augustine had this idea. He said he came up with the number uh, 17 was key, because if you take... If you take 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13... 14, I don't know what numbers he stopped, but if you take all of these to 17, 15, 16, and 17, if you add those all up continuously, it equals 153. Oh, that's fun. That's kind of unique, right? Doesn't spiritually enlighten me at all, though. <laughs> Not quite sure what St. Augustine was thinking there, okay? But it's cool. I mean, there's just lots of people say, well, 10 and 7. 10 represents the commandments, the Seven, you know, that's the fullness. So the, God's law is the fullness. That's 17. I think that's where we're kind of, some people saw St. Augustine's thoughts and thought he was going with 10 plus 7, you know, or something like that. I don't, I don't know. But this 153, let's come back to Archimedes. Because remember, the Gospel of John was written specifically in an age to enlighten the church, okay, which was now a Greek-speaking church. Okay, it, this is the church of the world, not the church of the Jews in the, in the uh, first couple of decades or the first decade or the first few years. 
You know, Matthew's writing his gospel speaking particularly to a Jewish audience, and Luke's writing particularly to a Gentile audience, and Mark's just trying to get the story out there really fast and hard with all the... leaves a lot of different details, but shows a lot of actions. But John writes a theological, mystical gospel full of mystery and revealing of mystery. And to Greeks, wisdom was everything. The pursuit of wisdom... That's why when you read the, in the Bible, you see a lot of, of uh, you see a lot of wisdom literature, the book of the book of uh, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, and there's even called a book of wisdom. Did somebody else have a question? Did I overlook somebody? No, I think Pat's trying to see the board right now. Oh, am I covering okay. it up? Sorry, I, I, I'm covering I, I, it up for you. Just say move over. <laughs> I was trying to work out a number to try to figure out. The significance of the number 153, <laughs> according to Pi, and it don't you're you're, you're going to be at it for. I think the only significance. I think the only significance is the idea that nine out of the ten, everybody knew, nine out of the ten equations all came to 153, and I find that fascinating because that's wisdom to the Greeks. Archimedes represents wisdom to the Greeks, and so what what would John be saying? What would he say here? For John to say, Jesus directed 153 fish into that net. What is he trying to say to the world? And 153 represents the wisdom of the world. Because it wouldn't hold 154. (laughs) I think he's trying to say the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of Archimedes, the wisdom that you think you have is, is God's wisdom. God is sovereign over all things. God's wisdom is sovereign over the world. Whatever wisdom you Greeks have, it comes from God. And I think there's just a neat correlation there. I I don't think we can go a lot deeper into that. I, I could be totally wrong, and if I am, hey, so are a lot of other scholars that I read that from. But it may of all the different stories, and I spent some time on this, I, that one made the most sense to me. That the Greek culture who's reading the Gospel of John especially when it's being uh, witnessed to, is going to see the connection between Almighty God as the source of all sovereign source of all wisdom. So, speculation a little bit perhaps, but I, I think it helps us to understand that all Scripture, remember this, we're studying Scripture 2,000 years later, from a way different perspective and, and culture and context. We must always seek to f- figure out and to ascertain and to understand as best we can the context in which it was first delivered because all scripture had meaning to those to whom it was written to. That's rule number one of Bible study. All scripture has a meaning to those to whom it was written to. Okay. And only once we discern that can we move on to rule number two, which is, of course, that it has a meaning to us today, too. That's the difference. Those are the big Bible study tools known as exegetics and hermeneutics. Okay, Exegetics is the word for studying what was the original meaning here. Let's look at the context. What was the original thought here? What was it understood as? Hermeneutics is the thought of what does it mean, how do we apply that to us today? Okay, It's a funny word, hermeneutics. It has nothing to do with a man named Herman. 
This is the Greek <laughs> word, okay, hermeneutics. But, but it is, uh, so remember that. So I, I really think these details have a point. Uh, let's look a little further here. We know it's, they know it's the Lord. Peter, it, it, just like at the tomb, John runs and gets there. I mean, they hear it's the Lord. The Lord's risen. They hear this word. John and Peter run off. You know, John gets there first. He's the first to recognize Jesus here. He gets to the tomb first. But Peter did what first? Ran into the tomb first. Brashly and boldly just runs right in. Same way here. John's the first one to recognize Perhaps because he always called himself, in the third person, as we see here, the one whom Jesus loved. The one whom Jesus loved. We've talked about that in other weeks. John had a very unique and special relationship of love with his Lord that we should all have. We should all desire to have. Okay, And I'm, I'm sure Peter did too, in time. But John seemed to have it first. John seemed to hit that plane of love for his Savior, love for his Lord in a, in a very agape sort of way before some of the others. And, and, and he felt that and he saw that. Yes? I have a question. Sure. John that we're talking about here, he has nothing to do with John the Baptist, correct? Two different people completely. Yep. This is jo- Sometimes history is called this one John the Beloved or John the Theologian. Not John, or John the Divine, which is an old English word for theologian, mm-hmm. but not John the Baptist. Two different people. That's what I to Do you make, think maybe sure. that special relationship was because John was was younger, and children kind of tend to? Well, I I don't know why. I could be, but I I don't know. We don't even know his age really, except we do know we. There's a a couple of weeks back, and I can't remember which podcast it was on. We talked about John. Maybe being, having been called, there was a tradition, historical tradition said he was called away from a bride, that he was called away, that when Jesus called him, that he was maybe engaged or to be married, but gave up that life for a life with Christ. That's an image of the church is always the bride, Jesus is the bridegroom, Mm -hmm. you know. There's that image John kind of represents. We don't, I don't know, could be. Young, youthful, maybe going to get married, maybe not. Virgin, betrothed to God and Christ. It's a beautiful image of love either way. But Peter, we know, is this brasher personality, this one who just, he just jumps in the water. He, you know, it's, he, he does take time to put his clothes on, you know, which <laughs> stripped down to his uh, whatever call, well, underwear was called in those days. Some of your versions might say he was naked. Probably he had some form of whatever wrap they used for underwear. But he puts on his work clothes, his outer clothes, and he's... Swims with that um, and, and swims to shore. It says they're about 100 yards away. Some of your Bibles, especially the King James, might say cubits. Does it say like 200 cubits in the King James Mine Bible? 100 yards, NIV. The original word here was in the, is this word translated into English, cubits. You know, you hear that a lot, word a lot in the Bible. Okay. Does anybody know what a cubit was or is or is thought of? It, it, it's thought of as a. It's thought of as a. As a. The word is the actual Greek word. Uh, did I write it down? I'm thinking what that Greek word is. It's. It's. Pekus. Uh, Pekus. P e c h u s. Pekus. And it's the word from the forearm to the fingertip, which is roughly a foot and a half on most people. So it's a weird. In, it's a weird thing that so no matter how. Twenty inches. Just yeah. Like you said. Maybe. Yeah. There you go. About twenty inches. So I. 
I remember, I'm very slow at math. I couldn't get the 20-inch part. I can visualize it elbow to fingers, though. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's weird how a lot of people have, you can have longer arms. And, you know, it's weird how many people, it's kind of average the same length there. Isn't that weird? Neat? Whatever you want to call it. Even though some arms are longer than others, that tends to be from the upper arm where the length is. You know, you, a lot of people's height is different. But you know what's usually different about them? Their leg length, mm-hmm. not their upper body length. Sometimes up. You know, you just see people that are unusually long in both their upper body and their body. But, but in the average person, I'd say. So the forearm is the word for the cubit, which would translate it out to about 100 yards. So that's a football field, right? Mm-hmm. About a football field. That'd be a long ways to swim. It's a long ways for me to swim, that's for sure, because I can't swim at all. But, um, but it, it wasn't so far that they couldn't see... You know, there's a person there, he's calling and he's shouting out to them. And so when John, at 100 yards, okay, let's think about this for a minute. At 100 yards, if you it, if you just were standing at the other end of a football field, we're both in each end zone. Mm-hmm. If I didn't know it was you, because I knew you were there, it would have been tough to recognize you. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to see a lot of distinct facial features. and th- You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But John said, it's the Lord. What helped him realize it was the Lord? He's, he's, he's just intimately connected. He, I'm sure he immediately remembers how Jesus, the other fishing experience they had, mm-hmm. cast so, your nets on the other side. It's, it's got to be the Lord. I know it is. Somebody that we're really connected with, we'll recognize a lot sooner. Right. Wise, exactly. Somebody that you just... Uh, you know, I no. think I think that's accurate, Pat. If it was you and Linda, you would just I you would just recognize even. Was yards away. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Did you have a thought? Ken? I was just thinking that he would recognize his stance, his demeanor. Yeah, so. and he was he was in tune. John was very in tune to what was going on. So <clears throat> when they get to the shore, what do they find? A charcoal fire. Who lit the charcoal fire? How did they light it? <laughs> I, I bet you Jesus said, okay, Father, we need charcoal fire right there. <laughs> he wasn't over there rubbing sticks together, that's for sure. He's the Lord of all creation. What is it with charcoal fires? Yeah. Why, why, why a charcoal fire? What do you what, Think about this story. What does charcoal fire symbolize here? Okay. What else? <coughs> Remember, John always puts these adjectives and thoughts in here for a reason. It's not just a fire. Well, it's charcoal, charcoal can fire. also be coals, yeah. so to speak, too. Okay. Because that's actually what charcoal is. It's, it's coals, but it's already been burned. If we go back in the story to the night in which Jesus was betrayed, and he was hauled to Caiaphas' house, I saw kind of an oh yeah in some faces there. What does it tell us? Peter and John go to the house where Caiaphas lived. John's known, so he goes inside. Peter gets Peter in with him. And, and it says they were doing what? Warming, the Warming themselves, themselves by, the by a charcoal oh, fire. Oh, I didn't remember the charcoal oh, yeah. fire. But Little detail, by yeah. a charcoal fire. Oh, Apparently there are lots of kinds of fire. I mean, you could build a fire with wood, lots of things. But they were charcoal fires. So again, John's saying by a charcoal fire. We're setting up Peter here. John is setting up the story about Peter's 
reinstatement, if you will. And we're not going to have time for that this week. We're going to talk about that next week, but we're not quite there yet. But that he's setting the stage for those verses where, where Peter is being restored by Jesus. So when they got out on land, they see the charcoal fire, and the fish are on the fire already. Okay, Fish and what else? Bread. Bread. What is bread always a symbol of in Scripture, in New Testament Scripture? The body of Christ. Very Eucharistic symbol here. The bread. Okay, It's the staple of their life. So, and, and even we can go beyond that as we look into the, the, uh, the next portion, the, the last few verses we read, it says, uh, Jesus says, come and eat. Come and dine is that old-fashioned phrase from the King James. There was a hymn in the hymnal, come and dine, you know. Jesus bids us come and dine. You remember that? Um, now, Jesus taking bread, it says, it says he even took the bread and he gave it to them. Doesn't it say that? I think it does. Jesus came, verse 13, came and took the bread and gave it to them. Okay? And, this, and so it's also with the fish. You know, can you imagine what that reminded them of? Jesus taking the bread and blessing it. And saying, this is my body given for you. I mean, their mind, that was just a couple of weeks before. Maybe even a week and a half. We don't know exactly what day this is. But it was very recent to them. Bread's very important. So it's a beautiful symbol to us all these years later that Jesus is the source of life. He is the bread of life. That's a symbol that John uses over and over. Jesus is the bread of life. Um, and he invites them to bring some of the fish you've caught. He's already got some fish there, okay? But he invites them to bring some of the fish you've caught. Why is that important? It's all Jesus' fish. You know, I'm, I'm providing for you, but you're going to go and gather. You know, you're going to remember from the beginning, there to be fishers of men. So he invites them, but before they put their fish on the fire, they counted them because they knew there was. A, we know that they counted. He doesn't tell us here, and they sat down and counted the fish. But because John uses the 153, we know they counted them. And it doesn't even say they were. They weren't. When I did catch fish, they were always little fish. I'm actually. I'm good at one thing. I'm good at catching perch in Kansas. Okay, they're little bitty fish in Kansas. Now, there are perch, ocean perch, they're pretty good size, okay? But uh, these, the, John even adds another uh, qualifier. He said they were large fish. Yeah. Okay. If they can't drag them 153, they had to be large fish. Large fish, that's right. And, and, when, he, and when he says that, in verse 11, it says, you know, the, they've been hauling this net with their boat to land as best they could. But when it gets there to, when Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've caught, who goes and grabs the fish? Peter. Peter. A, a very, again, a very leadership quality. Peter goes and gets the fish. Peter has always been seen as the leader of the disciples. The proto-disciple, the first of the disciples. Remember, it was to Peter that Jesus first said, you're a rock, and I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Yeah, Peter is a special place. And we're going to talk about that more when we get to the next week's lesson, too. But for now, uh, it's good enough for us to see some of the things that we've looked at here. I want to say one thing to the last in our last few minutes together. The idea of the fish. We've talked about the symbolism of the two supernatural fishing trips 
the two supernatural catches, if you will. We'll talk what what are the, the fish. Jesus always used fish as a symbol. He said, I'll make you fishers of men, right? The fish becomes an early Christian symbol. You see, you knew that already. You know, if you see people everywhere with a little fish on their car, you know, you know what about them? What are they trying to say? He even, was, even caught a fish and had the tax money in the fish's mouth. Right, right. The symbol like that. It's just two arced lines. You know, all it is is two arced lines. That arc, and they intersect, forming what looks like a fish's tail. That's an international symbol. It recognizes that that person is a Christian. Okay? Now, we know that because in the early second century, okay, John is living at the end of the first century. Okay? He's in, right when the centuries divide. In this early second century, we have historical records of people using the fish symbol as a symbol for, to let you know I'm a Christian. Okay? Because it wasn't obvious to, remember Christianity was illegal. It wasn't obvious, you know, to, to be a, uh, a Christian. And sometimes they had to protect themselves from that. And so the fish, this is, I wrote the word in English. This is the Greek word in an English transliteration, ichthus. Ichthus. Okay? Uh, this is the word spelled in Greek letters. I've seen okay. that on cars, even. You have, haven't you? And you can see, and you can look up in in antiquity. I think in Ephesus, which is around where John's living, in the very early second century, there's actually some artifacts that have been found that show this carved in <coughs> some Christian artifacts. Now, what does it mean, though? Uh, let me erase this so I can... What, why the word... There's actually symbol to this, and I think it's important for us to see. Each one of these letters, or these letters, I'll use these Greek ones, okay? Because the Greek alphabet, they all symbolize something. The I... It, I'm going to have to read this because I don't just memorize it here. The I symbolizes the, the, first, the, the first letter here. Each one of these represents the first letter of a word. So um, this would be the word... Iesus, I pronounce it Iesus. Um, okay, Iesus. Anybody know what Iesus is in Greek? Jesus. 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 Iesus. Jesus. Okay. Uh, this this is the this X rep- is the letter Chi in the Greek alphabet. C H I Chi. Okay. Chi, and that represents the word. Cairo is a famous Kai, it means Christ. Okay? Or the anointed one. Or the king. Okay? Cairo. Um, T, this is the this symbol right here is the theta. That's the letter in Greek theta. You've heard of all the famous theta, you know, theta, gamma, whatever, you know, uh-huh. the Greek fraternity. Uh-huh. That's the letter. T is called theta, and that would be. For the word, the first letter, the T of the word theu. Theu means God in Greek. Okay. And then uh, the what looks to us like a Y is I know actually. What that is the total thing is, is is Jesus Christ, God is with us. Okay, you're, you're pretty darn close. You're figuring it out. Upsilon. Okay, upsilon or upsilon. I think it's technically upsilon. The U sounding. Okay which is um, actually the Greek word 
would be spelled with that Y, and it's uh, I-O-S, okay, if this is a, a transliteration of it. Eos, Eos, Heos, actually, I think it has, the Y has come kind of an H, Heos, and that's the word son, okay? Yeah. Jesus Christ, God's son, son. okay? And there's one last letter, okay, and that last letter is the sigma, that's called the sigma, and S would stand for the Greek word soter, which would be savior, which means to save. Oh my goodness. Oh, wow. So the ichthus, okay, if, if, a, if a people wrote that word, ichthus, what were they saying? They're saying, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, God's son, is my savior. And thus the fish, the word fish and the symbol fish, became a very important early Christian symbol, packed full of meaning. I guess they call that an acrostic or an acronym. I can't remember what you call it. But the early Christians saw it that way, in the Greek context, okay, in their language. Isn't that cool? Yeah, Yeah, it is. Very very important. So this story in the last chapter, there's two big themes to the last chapter of John. We've talked about the fish is the theme for this first week. Next week, we'll talk about the restoration of Peter. Okay? And together, with the fish and the restoration of Peter, we're going to get the general theme of the whole church and the church's mission in the world. The first 20 chapters, Jesus is God. And he's proved, John's proving it. The last chapter, now what? Go out and fish for men and... Peter gets restored to do that. So we'll talk about that next week. Any questions, thoughts, comments before we close today? This has really made me think about um, how I read the Bible now. I need to be looking for the symbolism and the... That's the goal of this class. Always read the Bible for all that it's worth. There is so much more than meets the eye. Historical meanings and everything else should right. be taken into consideration. So we need time. We need times to read the Bible where it's just worship. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. we got to do that. We have to do that. But we also need times where we read the Bible for study. And that's what we're doing. And what does our prayer say when we begin? Illumine our hearts yes. with the pure light of your divine knowledge. We can't understand the Bible on our But through the light of Christ, with proper illumination, we do. Okay? And that's what Jesus promised to the church. He promised, John is one of John's favorite metaphors for Jesus, the light of the world. Okay? And his word is light. Yes, Rhonda. Um, We want to remember H.O. and Connie. H.O. and Connie, you all may know, I mean, it's just not doing well at all. Uh, very serious, um, and you've probably heard updates here through the church, but uh, sure remember them in prayer right now. And 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 um, just you know whatever's on your heart, just remember that in prayer as well. Also, yeah. Um, we had heard that the young man that was goes to the youth group here, and her hip yeah. was broken. And yeah, Pastor Larry Page was telling me about that yesterday. That 
one of the girls in the youth group, uh, it's her boyfriend that was killed in that car. She was in that car, too, and very seriously injured, yes. We have a family just around the corner from us that they, their whole house completely burned down. Oh, my. Last night. Oh, my, we last night. fire coming out of the Oh, room. my. Wow. And we talked to him this morning for just a moment and offered any help and also our prayers. Yeah. Our young, our young, young couple. Family. Wow. Praise the Lord for that. Yeah. Well, there's so many needs around us. Remember, the greatest thing we can do is pray. That's right. The greatest thing any believer does is pray. Well, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for time together in your word, the light of the world, your word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, the Ichthus, Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Savior. Be with these requests we've lifted up for H.O. and Connie and this young girl from the group and this family who lost their own fire. Lord God, in all that we carry in our hearts, we give up to you in this moment of prayer. Thanking you for this time together, asking your blessing for us as we leave until we meet again. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. God bless you. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry. And I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as he forms his spirit within you.